Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our time together. Father, your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is through your word that you teach us how we are to think as your creatures, how we are to live as those who have been regenerate, born again, adopted into your royal family, that our thinking may conform to your plan and your purposes, and that we may be able to interpret and understand the circumstances around us in such a way as to apply the appropriate teaching from your word and that thereby we can be relaxed and calm no matter what the circumstances may be because we understand that our security, our hope, our stability, our future is in your hand. It is not dependent upon the changing, ever-shifting circumstances of our finite experience. So, Father, now as we study your word, may we be challenged to think biblically in terms of how we understand the world around us, but also may we realize that even in our darkest times and moments, whether they are personal or national, that you are still in control and therefore there is always hope and we can always be relaxed in your grace. And we pray that we can focus, concentrate, during this time, and that God the Holy Spirit will make these things clear to us. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in First Kings on Sunday morning. Last week I began a sort of an overview review, since it has been a couple of months since we were in First Kings, and I didn't quite get through everything I wanted to cover last time, so I'm continuing that uh, this morning, last time we looked at the tyranny of the sin nature, and this morning what I'm looking at is the path to tyranny in terms of its governmental and political and social manifestations. And as such, we have to remember that the ultimate source of all tyranny is the sin nature, as Scripture says, and all of us are born as sinners. Every single human being since Adam has been born with a sin nature and spiritually dead. And because we are born spiritually dead, we are enslaved to that sin nature. We have volition, we make choices, but as a spiritually dead unbeliever, there is one realm of choice that is completely foreign to every human being. And that is a choice that is truly righteous, a choice that is truly good in the sight of God, a choice that has any merit in terms of his righteousness. And so we are limited, as it were, in our volition and in our exercise of choice until we are born again. At the instant that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, At that moment, we are regenerate, the Scripture says, and at that moment, 
God creates and imparts to us a new spirit that enables us to have a relationship with God, to understand eternal truths, and to be able to uh, live and apply them in our lives. In the church age, we are also given at that moment of salvation God the Holy Spirit, and it is God the Holy Spirit who is the one who energizes and empowers us and by whom we walk as we mature spiritually for that new life that we have when we trust in Jesus as our Savior is given to us, but it is compared in Scripture to the life of an infant, the life of a baby. And so the Bible uses this analogy in terms of human experience of growth from human infancy to maturity. And everyone is born a spiritual infant, They have no knowledge, no understanding of eternal things other than what they have just learned, that God has provided through his love a Savior who died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin. And because of that, we can have eternal life. So bondage ultimately is an individual problem. It is not a social problem. It is not a group problem. It's not an education problem. It is not a national problem. It is an individual problem. So to solve that problem and its serious implications for all realms of human society, whether it's as small as a two people in a marriage or as broad as a nation, the ultimate solution and the only real solution begins at the cross, and it is only when people have true freedom that comes through Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 1, it is for liberty that Christ has set us free. That freedom there isn't political, it is spiritual. For the basic problem that everybody faces is a spiritual problem that we have from the moment of our birth, that being enslaved to the sin nature, and it's only once that true spiritual freedom occurs that we can ever come to understand what real freedom is in other areas of life. And even if we live in political, under political tyranny, or if we live in circumstances or in organizations where there is uh, very little freedom, we have freedom in our soul. And every believer has true freedom in the soul because of that relationship to God. Now, when we understand that as our broad category and our broad understanding for what uh, is the basis for tyranny and bondage in human experience and what that solution is, then we can begin to see in history and in the outworkings of individual Uh, relationships, whether it's in a small community or a large community, we can begin to see the outworking of either the production of the sin nature towards corruption and bondage or the outworking of spiritual truth in terms of understanding and experiencing freedom in the course of life. Now, one of the things that we have in the Bible is not only a focus on the spiritual problem and the spiritual solution. But God, in the way he has put together this revelation from Genesis through the last book of the Bible, Revelation, God gives us the kind of information we need, his divinely edited observations on history, so that through studying that we can come to understand Uh, many different principles related to every area of life. The Bible is not a uh, monothematic book. It is not just focused on salvation and the spiritual life. It is designed to teach us how to think about every area of human experience from God's perspective and how to be able to bring that grid to bear to interpret and understand circumstances so that then we can apply problem-solving rationales to the situations we face in life, thinking about them in a biblical framework without allowing the circumstances we face to overwhelm us, to 
discourage us, to make us feel uh, hopeless and helpless because we understand as believers that God is in control and circumstances vary down through history. Christians have lived and flourished under many different kinds of political environments. Uh, Christians have also suffered and also been persecuted under many different political environments. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, at the time of Elijah, believers are going through a time of unprecedented suffering and hostility and persecution as Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, is sending out her... uh, Einsatzgruppen, her uh, basic hit squads, to seek and destroy the prophets of God who are living in the northern kingdom and to destroy any witness or evidence of the truth of God in the northern kingdom. And so one of the lessons that we can learn and that we will trace as we go through our study of Elijah is how God protects how God provides for believers living under not merely a political tyranny, but also in an environment of spiritual hostility where their very lives are threatened. One of the questions that I have raised as we've gotten into this episode in the Northern Kingdom's history is how in the world did they uh, did they get there? How did they get into this mess? And by understanding the dynamics, the pathology, as it were, of the development of tyranny in this period, we can understand the connection between spirituality and freedom. We can understand the connection between what many people today want to isolate as religious perceptions and religious thought and social consequences and political actions. In God's world, everything is interconnected. In the mind of modern and postmodern man, everything is disconnected, especially when it comes to uh, religion. There are many secularists in this nation and who of, of all political stripes who do not think that religious belief should have anything to do with how somebody thinks about economics or literature or art or music or politics because these things are different from religion. So somehow you Christians, you just keep your Bible studies in your uh, churches on Sunday morning because these don't have anything to do with how we make decisions in a nation. What we see in the Old Testament is that political and economic circumstances are the consequence of spiritual decisions. And at the very core of life are those spiritual realities because those spiritual realities have to do with how we understand ultimate reality. And ultimate reality is either God, uh, the God of the Bible, a personal, infinite, righteous, loving God, or it is something less than that. And if we look at the culture around us, that which is ultimate reality is nothing but impersonal matter. And at its most extreme opposite, these are the uh, decisions, these are the options that are presented, either impersonal matter that is, uh, that operates on principles of pure random chance, or on the other hand, we live in a universe that was created by a personal infinite God who designed every aspect of the universe, whether it has to do with life or uh, human interaction, social institutions, or whether it has to do with the physics, chemistry, and biology of all of the aspects in that, in that universe. And these are, are the opposites. Now, what flows out of that, understanding of ultimate reality, affects how you think about not knowledge. And the ultimate issue in knowledge, interestingly enough, is the ultimate issue in the universe, in the history of man, and in the history of angels. For the issue, the second issue that flows out of ultimate reality is how do you know anything about ultimate reality? Uh, 
And when we come to try to answer that question of how do we know, we have to go to the issue of authority. How do you know something is true means what is the ultimate authority in your life? Is the ultimate authority in your life what other people think, the opinion of those around you? Is the ultimate uh, authority in your life that which is derived through the scientific endeavor, through the use of rationalism and empiricism within the scientific method, totally apart from any external input where the universe is viewed as a closed system and there can't be presuppositionally any information coming into that closed system from an external authority such as God. We have to be able to find our answers totally, completely from within that that closed system. So knowledge ultimately involves this question of authority. What is the authority for you when you say that something is right or something is wrong? When you see something happen, you hear about a piece of legislation in the state or federal legislature, and you say, well, that's good or that's bad. Whenever we use value judgments of that type, that involves a system of knowledge in order to make those evaluations. That system of knowledge includes that ultimate authority. So to make value judgments, to make any sort of ethical decision, which is involved whenever anybody votes on anything or uh, whether it's a legislator voting on a piece of legislation or whether it is a citizen voting in the voting booth, whenever that voting takes place, they are making an ethical choice. They are saying this is good, that is bad, or this is better, and that is worse. But to make those kinds of valuations, you have, what lies behind that is a system of values that presupposes a system of knowledge and an authority base. So who's your authority? Is it God, a personal infinite God who can speak to man and who has spoken to man to give man a complete framework of thought so that he can then evaluate and understand the issues of life? Or is your ultimate reality something that is within creation itself, something that comes out of man's own thought based on rationalism, empiricism, or even even mysticism. And when we put our ultimate authority on God who exists outside of creation as the infinite personal creator who stands completely separate from creation, then that is part of worshiping God. But when we put our ultimate authority within creation, in human opinion, in the results of a uh, closed system, scientific operation based on rationalism and empiricism, or we put our ultimate authority upon the uh, intuitive insights of people who think that they are uh, getting messages from God in mysticism, then what we are doing is we're saying ultimate authority lies within the creaturely realm. And when we put the ultimate authority within the creaturely realm, the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is not simply the worship of external images made out of uh, wood or metal or stone. Idolatry ultimately derives from a mental attitude where we are putting the ultimate authority in our life in something that is created over against the creator of all things. Once we get involved in idolatry, then we are basically feeding and following. The two operate together. We're both feeding and following the lust patterns of our sin nature. Now, we've studied sin nature in the past, and we know that that which drives the sin nature at the very core of its uh, makeup are the, these lust patterns. That's, that's the driving force. There's all kinds of lust patterns we could mention, but the ones I'm going to sort of focus on initially would be, just be power lust, uh, materialism lust, money lust, or greed. Uh, we have sexual lust. 
we have the lust for uh, recognition, we have the lust for approval. These are the uh, prime lusts, you might say. And when there is no restraint on the lust patterns of the sin nature, then those lust patterns are free to operate at their fullest extent. That's called the tyranny of the sin nature. And the sin nature is in, in the driver's seat and is in control. The only thing that can minimize the sin nature for creatures, apart from salvation, is going to be some form of discipline, ethics, or law, all of which bring to bear a value system. And whenever we talk, start talking about value system, what does that take us back to again? It takes us back to that whole issue of how do you know what's right or wrong? What's your ultimate authority? Is your ultimate authority human reason, human experience? Is your ultimate authority uh, getting uh, insights, flashes from God? Or is your ultimate authority an objective revelation from God in his word? And that's just so interesting because all the issues in life ultimately come down to this whole thing about authority. And you might sit back and scratch your head a little bit and say, why is authority such a major issue. Why is authority such a factor in the Scriptures? And it's because the original sin in the universe was a sin of rejection of authority. It was the sin of God's highest and most intelligent angel, whom we refer to as Lucifer or by his post-fall title, Satan or the devil, as he sought to make himself the ultimate authority in the universe when he stated his five I wills as they were recorded in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be that ultimate authority. He wanted to be the one who would determine what right and wrong would be, and he wanted to be the one to whom and through whom everything in creation would ultimately refer. And so the ultimate battle, the ultimate revolution in the history of the universe was an authority issue. And this is what we always have to come down to as believers whenever we start talking about this whole issue of freedom and tyranny and we start seeing how these spiritual issues work themselves out within the framework of, of human uh, human government. So last time as we got into our review of Elijah, I raised two questions, or one basic question, how did Israel get into the mat, this mess? And the first thing I pointed out was the syncretism of Solomon, the syncretism of Solomon. I'll explain, define the word syncretism in just a minute. But what went hand in hand with the syncretism of Solomon is he rejected God and began to blend uh, various other religions together was the arrogance of the people, the arrogance of the people. And it is, it's not just a problem of government in terms of Solomon's abuse of it as he, uh, turned toward idolatry, rejecting the mandates God had put into the law for how the king should, uh, conduct himself, but it also involved the arrogance of the people. And I focused last time on one way in which we saw this arrogance manifested early on in the history of Israel, back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they first uh, asked of God, demanded of God that God would give them a king, and they wanted a king, not on God's terms, but on their terms, a king like all the other nations. And so the first king that God gave them was a king that was like the king in all the other nations, a king that operated on carnality. His name was Saul, the first king of the uh, United Kingdom. But God warned them through Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, one of the great chapters in the Bible that gives us a foundation for developing a biblical philosophy of government, warning that when a, you have a government established, that the trend of the government, because the government's made up of people, people operate on sin natures, and as a result of that, when there is uh, an, un, an unrestrained atmosphere in the government, that the government would move toward, uh, toward tyranny. The government would move toward gaining greater and greater control over people 
and that this would be demonstrated through excessive uh, taxation and that this taxation would ultimately enslave the people, which is what we looked at last time in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, verse 17. The conclusion was that the, the king would take a tenth of this, a tenth of that. He would continue to increase uh, the taxation until uh, you yourselves would become his servants, as the New King James and other translations translated, but actually the word is evident in the Hebrew, and it means slaves, that the people then no longer have liberty, but they become enslaved to the government, and that this has happened under tyrannical governments down through history, whether they be uh, monarchies or dictatorships or various other uh, forms of human government. Uh, when there is a, a view that the resources of the nation, the resources of the individuals actually belong to the uh, government, then what you have is a view that basically sees the people as working not for their benefit to improve their lives, putting an emphasis on the individual, which is where the Bible puts its emphasis, but they are there simply to uh, support and feed the lust patterns of an unrestrained government so that there is a promotion of their own uh, sin nature lust, whether it's power lust or materialism lust, greed, uh, sexual lust, lust for recognition and approval, and all of these things can work together uh, within the uh, dynamics of different uh, political leaders, whether they are of the uh, Taliban variety or they are of the uh, European so-called Christian socialist variety or whether they are the Marxist variety or even the Republican, Libertarian, or Democrat variety because we are fallen creatures and that's the way we move is towards the, <clears throat> towards the lust patterns of the sin nature. So there, because of the sin nature, there is this normal trend, just as a ball will always roll downhill and water will always flow downhill, there is always the trend in governments and in societies for there to be a trend toward the loss of liberty and freedom, a loss of the value of the individual and, uh, and an emphasis and promotion on the uh, power of the elite or the governing body. These realities were clearly recognized, as I pointed out last time, by the founders of the American Republic. In their writings, uh, through computer studies, we've seen that the, the source most frequently quoted by the uh, fa- founding fathers, the looking at their diaries, looking at their letters, looking at their speeches, looking at different pieces of legislation uh, through computer analysis, the source most frequently quoted by at least two to one was the Bible. And many of the other men who were also cited in their writings were men who understood Scripture, and you find embedded in their writings a lot of references to Scripture. So it's clear that the number one influence on their thinking came out of Scripture, which is what one could expect if they understand the history of English-speaking peoples during the uh, 17th and 18th century. So Thomas Jefferson was one who recognized this, and he stated that the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. That's the same warning that God gives in 1 Samuel chapter 8, is that that's the natural tendency is for the government to increase and personal liberties to decrease. Uh, John Adams, also a signer of the Declaration of Independence and who died the same day that Jefferson did, exactly 50 years after they signed the Declaration of Independence, stated in an address to the military on October 11th, 1798, stated, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions. Now, I want you to think categorically. What does he mean by human passions? He means the sin nature. We're talking about the same thing. He says we don't have a government that's capable of dealing with an unrestrained sin nature, basically, unbridled, 
by morality and religion. See, it's morality and religion that provide a control on the sin nature of those in government. He says, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. He then said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That is because without what he calls religion and morality, which in his thinking was Christianity, which is the only religion, using the term broadly, that provides an objective system of absolutes. And so even this kind of thinking is embedded within the uh, thinking of the, of the Declaration of Independence itself. Now, I put the about three paragraphs up here. What I want to get to is on the next slide, but I want you to catch the context of this because it's, it's fascinating how they wrote. And it shows how they've been influenced by biblical thought. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They understand stand that man is created. He is not a chance operation where a piece of protoplasm somehow was got hit by electricity and in the shock of it all developed into something more complex that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these, which means there's many more, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The emphasis I want to point to is on liberty here. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So they understood that the role of government was to preserve and protect Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, liberty being one of the things they are to pursue and to protect. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. Interesting terminology. And to institute new Government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes. They recognized that there was a, a significant reaction that would occur when there was a change of government, and this should only be done under extreme and dire circumstances. The Declaration goes on to say, and accordingly, all experience has shown, and watch this, this is so insightful, this is what I'm saying, is that people tend to do what's comfortable, what's comfortable is the trend of the sin nature, and even when we are, are sinking into the bondage and the servitude of slavery to government, we don't want to do anything about it. That mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. And then goes on to give further insight. But see, what I point out in that statement is there's this recognition there that that government, that, that the trend of history is to, to lose liberty and for governments to trend towards gaining greater and greater power over against the, uh, the freedom, the liberty of the individual, but that the trend of the individual is to let it happen. See, that's part of the sin nature as well, to be complacent, to relax your guard, to not be involved. These are... These are dangers as well, and it shows that the responsibility of uh, slipping into the servitude of tyranny is just as much a part the responsibility of the governed as it is those who govern. Now, when we look at the history of Israel preceding the time of, uh, of Elijah, we see that this trend into the tyranny of oppressive government really began with Solomon. But it didn't begin with political action. It began with spiritual decisions 
on Solomon's part. Solomon had been devoted to God and spiritually matured at a very young age, and he had been blessed richly by God in accordance with God's promises in the Mosaic Law during the first 20 or 30 years of his time as king. But as he began to fail the test of prosperity more and more, and no nation has ever passed it, then Solomon got his eyes off of God and onto other things, including his uh, numerous wives. And it was through his intermarriage with these various other uh, women from different nations and different religious backgrounds that we see Solomon giving into syncretism. He's beginning to pick and choose his religious beliefs. It is no longer to completely and totally worship God. This is where we see the problem uh, develop. And so in 1 Kings eleven four through 6, we read, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. See, that's what syncretism is. It's not saying I'm rejecting Christianity. I'm just going to add to it. I'm going to, I'm going to pull some things out of Buddhism and some things out of Hinduism and some things out of Freudian psychology or Jungian psychology. And I'm going to pull some things out of good old, uh, good old American common sense individualism. And I'm just going to blend all these things together. And I'm still going to use Christian terms and Christian words and slap that on it. And we're going to all be able to feel good about our, our, our religion because it still sounds the same and uses the same words. So Solomon turned his heart after other gods, and he was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians. See, that is the fertility religion that comes in in a big way with uh, uh, Jezebel at the time of Elijah, some 60 or 70 years later. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, and there was uh, infant sacrifice associated with the worship of Milcom. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When Solomon died and God gave Solomon his report card, he got an E for evil. He didn't get a G for good or an R for righteous. He had, through syncretism, he had led the people into idolatry. See, they were no longer seeking as their ultimate source of knowledge, their ultimate authority, the Creator God who stood outside of creation. They were looking to an invented God or goddess that came as a result of the imagination of the human heart. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not... Follow the Lord fully. That's the second time we have that kind of phrase. Did not follow the Lord fully as David, his uh, father, has done. So he had given into what I pointed out last time, smorgasbord religion. This is syncretism. Let me read through this definition because it is, it's important to understand this. Syncretism is the joining or assimilating differing or opposite doctrines and practices. See, there's no concern for logic or rational consistency. We live in that kind of era under postmodernism. There is a rejection of historic logic because within postmodernism, uh, it's really a reaction to modernism. Modernism said that man on his own efforts and his own energy could come to solve man's problems apart from God through reason and experience using logic. Well, man hasn't done that. We've created the wars and the mass uh, killings and war and the suffering and famines and other social problems that were experienced in the 20th century. And so there was a rejection. There was a rejection of modernism. It doesn't really solve the problem. So there was this reaction, which is called postmodernism, which makes everything relative and everything uh, on equal value, whether it is the thought of some um, uh, <clears throat> some prehistoric or Stone Age uh, tribe in uh, in, in Indonesia, Indian uh, Jaya, or it is the thought of some educated 
elitist from Harvard. It's all of equal value. It all means the same thing. So you can pick and choose whatever you think works, whatever you want, and put it all together, mix it all up in a pot, and that's what works for you. And if it works for you, it's okay. There's no ultimate reference point other than just whatever you like, your own emotion, your own your own feelings. So syncretism is when you join or assimilate different or opposite doctrines and practices, especially between philosophical and religious systems, resulting in a new system altogether in which the fundamental structure and tenets of each have been changed. That means, you know, take any given row in here, you can have five, six, eight different religious or philosophical viewpoints, and it doesn't matter whether they're logical or not, because that implies some sort of external authority. It's just all based on what you want. This definition goes on to state, syncretism of the gospel occurs when its essential characteristic is confused with elements from the culture. That is, the Christian takes in all these different ideas that are part of the pop culture around them and blends them because he's not going to be in contrast or conflict with the ideas and the culture around him. And so the last line, in syncretism, the gospel is lost as the church simply uh, confirms and conforms, we might add, uh, to what is already present in the culture. And so Christians don't look and act any differently than the culture outside of the church because they have basically brought the thinking of the world as Paul would put it, into the church rather than uh, not being conformed to the world but being transformed uh, by the renewing of their mind. So we can say that in syncretism, the ethics that produce the virtue and integrity needed to preserve a righteous government and honest business are destroyed. In a syncretistic culture, and when you think in a relative way, you cannot produce the kind of ethics that will support liberty and freedom because you have eviscerated thought of any kind of of ethical system that the government can rest upon. That's what Adams and Jefferson recognized in those statements I quoted earlier, that when you remove the people from an external reference point for their thought in terms of absolutes, then the, the Constitution cannot continue, cannot stand, because basically people can't think anymore, and the system is based on integrity and honesty. And when you have political leaders and business leaders that have no restraint on their sin nature, and there is spiritual anarchy at the helm then there will be a complete collapse within the culture. And we're witnessing evidences of that all across the spectrum. That is part of what produced the meltdown this last uh, fall, which has been seen coming by, by many people. And we will have more of this kind of thing. We're seeing it in education. One of the things I'm hearing more and more as a drumbeat from parents is that they have sent their lovely Christian child off to a secular school and they have received back a postmodern syncretistic pagan that has rejected all of their values. And I hear it and see it every time I turn around because for the last 70 years there has been an orchestrated effort to take over the institutions of education so that objectivity and the objective pursuit of knowledge is no longer respected in the college classroom. I was speaking, spent some time with my cousin yesterday when I was in Dallas, and uh, I think he and I may be the only conservatives in the family. But um, he was talking about his Son. He has two sons, one of whom is at uh, the University of Texas in Austin. Now, the last time I spoke to that particular son, he was very conservative. And he told his dad recently, he said, you know, Dad, the way to make your A's in my history classes is just to tell them that whenever period of history you're studying, what the white men did was wrong and what anybody else did was right. 
And if I write my papers like that, I don't believe any of that garbage, but if I write them like that, I'll get an A+. But if I try to write what I believe to be true is I will fail the course. That is the agenda in too many, almost all secular classrooms, especially in the realm of liberal arts, rather than teaching objective methods of evaluating historical evidence and coming to conclusions, the professors have an agenda to brainwash students into their way of thinking. Well, how can you ever develop people who can think critically and make good decisions in life or in the election booth and choose good leaders if they don't have a clue what actually happened in history, the foundations of this nation, and if they just are brainwashed into thinking, and this is mostly white kids, that white people are just bad and everybody else is inherently good. There, there is no truth. We have perverted the systems of this nation by an unrestrained sin nature. That's the tyranny of the sin nature. So, the result of this syncretism, is that nothing is left to restrain the lust patterns of the soul. Power lust, money lust, sex lust, fame, these things are now unrestrained. They are free to be exploited to their fullest. And this increase of the power of the sin nature increases the tyranny of the sin nature over the nation's leaders, whether they're political, whether they are in business, whether they are religious, they are operating on the unrestrained sin nature, the tyranny of the sin nature, and this leads to the tyranny of the nation. The second stage in the slide to tyranny in Israel in the ancient world was the uh, occurred in the time of Jeroboam, the first after uh, Solomon led the nation into into tyranny. I mean, into, uh, into idolatry, God removed his blessing. Now, it's interesting to trace what happened. Just briefly, I'll go over this. Um, God had blessed them richly and greatly under Solomon as they were obeying the law and as the people were following the law, learning the word, applying the word. And because they were doing what God said to do, he was fulfilling the promises in the Mosaic law to rich them, to bless them richly in material things. And so the nation accumulated a vast amount of wealth, and, and Solomon had tremendous building projects with the temple and the palace and many other things, and they had a, a vast uh, uh, investment in uh, the commercial endeavors of the day. And, and we saw in our study earlier that that they control, Israel controlled these, the, the crossroads of the world coming east to west, north to south. All these roads passed through Israel. And as a result, they were at the center of trade. They had a, they were in league with the Phoenicians who controlled the, the sea lanes. And so they had an unprecedented prosperity in the golden age of Solomon. But then as Solomon began to get involved in idolatry and the people followed him and the nation lost its spiritual focus and got involved in the syncretistic religions of idolatry, then God removed his blessing and the nation began to lose its prosperity. But see, what happens is we don't like that to happen, so we have to do whatever we think is necessary in order to maintain the facade of prosperity. And the only way that Solomon could do that was to begin to tax the people more and more. So that by the time he dies, the people are overburdened by the taxes that he has imposed at the end of his reign in order to maintain the facade that God is still blessing them. Now, God had authorized, already announced the discipline on the nation and authorized a tax revolt. I think it's the first author, divinely authorized tax revolt in history. And he told Jeroboam, who was a leader among the northern tribes, that he was going to give the, he split the kingdom from under Solomon, and he was going to give Jeroboam the ten northern tribes. And that if Jeroboam would follow him, God said that he would establish his house, and create a dynasty for him, just as he had promised David. But David's promise was unconditional, 
But the promise God made to Jeroboam was conditional and said, I will do this. I will establish you in your house if you obey me. And Jeroboam did not obey him. Same problem that Solomon had, the problem of, of syncretism. And so not long after he led the revolt and the nation went through a civil war and the ten nations in the north split off as an autonomous kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam recognized that that all of his people were, were going to have to go down south to, to uh, Judah to worship at the temple. And he realized that there was a connection between this uh, allegiance to the authority of Yahweh and the temple that's in the other guy's kingdom. And so he didn't want his people looking to God in the south, so he said, we need to have our own God. And so he created two worship centers in the north, and they set up a, a golden calf to be worshipped in each one. And we see one of our early examples of historical revisionism where the government revises the interpretation of history to support its own ends. And Jeroboam said, this is the God who brought us out of, out of Egypt. Uh, you can worship him. And so one of the uh, sites that they set up was in the north at Tel Dan, which is in the northern extreme of, of the land. And we have the um, archaeological, archaeology has uncovered some of those remains. And you see here the basic picture here showing in the uh, foreground here, this was the area of the altar, and then up above was the bima, or the high place, uh, where they would worship the uh, golden calf. Here's a, another picture. You see a wooden frame down here showing the basic size of the uh, altar, the high places up here. And just for your own uh, curiosity, the area just about uh, three miles off in the background is in Lebanon. So this is in that tiny finger in the north just between Lebanon and, uh, and Syria. So this is where they set things up, and here's a depiction there of how they would sacrifice upon the altar. And a quote here from 1 Kings 12, 32 to 33, that Jeroboam ordained a feast and offered some, offered upon the altar, sacrificing the calves and ordained a feast for the children of Israel, and he offered up burnt offerings and incense. So this is a more current picture with the metal frame that depicts the size of the altar, and then you see the uh, little perspective on the height of the uh, high place in the background uh, underneath the tree that has now uh, now grown there. Here's a slightly different um, uh, perspective on this, and you can see the um, size of the altar there. Now let me see. I have one other slide here. This one. This one gives you a little other perspective there. So you can see it I'm with me in the foreground. So you see the size of a rather large altar. They had succumbed to, in the northern kingdom, they succumbed to idolatry. And this is what the prophet Amos describes, or Amos. In five, Amos 5, 25 and 26, Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikuth, your king, and Chion, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. From the time they came out of Egypt, they had this problem with syncretism. It wasn't God alone. And so we read also in 2 Kings 17.32 that they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests in high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. See there not only sacrificing to God, but also to all of these other gods as well, Second Kings 17.32. Jeremiah described this problem of syncretism in Jeremiah 19.5. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. You see, as Second Kings 17.33 states they feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations or the Gentiles from, who, uh, from among whom uh, they were carried away. Second Kings 17, 40 and 41 goes on to say, however, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, 
yet serve their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. So the problem is syncretism. The issue is, are we going to believe in the scriptures alone? Are we going to follow the same pattern in terms of uh, Satan's rebellion against God's authority and say, okay, the Bible has authority in some areas, but not in every area. And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to cherry pick uh, this idea from this system and that idea from this system and this idea from this system, and I'm going to mix it all up in my uh, mixing bowl and I'm going to make, uh, make my own truth. See, that was the problem in the northern kingdom, so that by the time they get to the uh, time of Elijah, just uh, two generations from the uh, separation of the two kingdoms, the king in the south is Ahab, and the king in the south has married into the family of the high priest of Baal in, in Phoenicia, married Jezebel, and she has brought with her as part of her dowry her religion and is imposing that upon the northern kingdom. So now they are under an even worse uh, tyranny. And this is where we find ourselves as we come to chapter 18, which we'll begin next time, is we discover that she has been attacking the, those who believed in the true God. In First Kings 18.4, we read, For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord. There is this hostility to the truth. And this is what always happens as anyone gives themselves over to their sin nature, whether it's the individuals or whether it is the corporate entity. When people give themselves over to the sin nature, then they seek some other truth. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1. So if there is going to be any solution, it is a solution that starts with the individual in turning to God in subordination, submission to his authority. Salvation doesn't start with the nation Salvation starts with the individual. Unfortunately, we have a president who announced in his speech last year that salvation begins with the nation and then extends to the individual. See, he has reversed what Scripture says. Scripture says salvation begins with the individual and then goes to the nation. As goes the individual, so goes the nation. It's not the other way around. Salvation doesn't lie with the nation, either in terms of uh, spiritual salvation or in terms of the deliverance of a nation. Salvation begins with the volition, the individual responsibility of those within the nation. And when the nation rejects the authority of God, when we reject the salvation of Jesus Christ, and we turn to other sources of hope and other sources of knowledge and other sources of authority, then we are doomed to be enslaved under the tyranny of our own sin natures, which will ultimately manifest in our submission and subordination to the tyranny of a government. So goes the history of the world. But as believers, we have hope because we can look down through the ages and see that no matter what the governmental system was, whether it was a monarchy, whether it was a dictatorship, or whether it was some other form of government, that believers have flourished in true freedom of the soul because they recognize that our hope, our stability, and our happiness is not based on the, the winds of history and politics that continuously change, but that our stability is based on the eternal principles of God's Word and that salvation begins at the cross. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to go through these principles to understand the uh, dynamics that were going on in Israel in the ancient world that as they were under the tyranny of the false religion, under the tyranny of Ahab and Jezebel, yet there was tremendous opportunity for spiritual blessing. We've seen this in Elijah, and we see this recognizing that there were 7,000 others who had not bowed the knee to Baal. 
and that there was real blessing for them, even though they were living in times of of uh, tyranny, times of oppression, times of persecution. And the resources that kept them going, the resources that gave them happiness and stability are the same resources we have. And our resources are guaranteed because we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this time to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The sin is the largest, the greatest problem you will ever face in life because it is sin that has separated us from God. But Jesus Christ bore the penalty of sin in his body on the cross, that that penalty would be paid for and that you can have eternal life. You can be justified before God's eyes and you can be forgiven of sin because Jesus Christ paid the penalty on the cross. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.